John and Diane Emel are here. Um, also, you may have noticed at guitar, right there, my good friend Daniel Neal. Dan, welcome back, buddy. Uh, Dan's here with his wife, Missy, and uh, their children, Sebastian, who apparently I am the godfather of. So I, I'm, now, I'm a godfather, and also Ayrton. I've done such a bad job with Sebastian, I wasn't invited to be the godfather of the second child. Um, but, yeah. There was a part uh, where I was asked to renounce the devil during the ceremony, and you could tell the priest was like, Are, is he really going to do it? He was a little bit concerned about me. But uh, Dan, Missy, it's good to have you guys here. Uh, in 2005, I got back from uh, Japan, and I'd been there for two years. And at that time, while I was in Japan, um, my friend Dan here had been uh, working for a mortgage company. And the two of us were in what's called now extended adolescence. Uh, a lot of you don't, don't know what extended adolescence is because you were the sorts of people who had to you know, make your own way, uh, pull yourselves up from the bootstraps, that sort of thing. You didn't have the luxury of being, um, what, a college student and then traveling the world or just living with your parents and just cranking it out, making tons and tons of money, being addicted to World of Warcraft. That's what Dan was doing from approximately 2005 to 2007 when he finally realized what a waste that was. Um, at, at th those are strange years. And I, the, title, the title of this message uh, today is um, What Seems Ordinary is Part of God's Extraordinary. Now, if you had asked me or Dan what we were thinking about doing in 2005, we would have just said, well, I don't know. Um, for me personally, I had a lot of questions about my faith. I didn't know what to think about the scriptures, about the resurrection, about the trinity, and I was very confused. I'd been in a country that was less than 1% Christian, and I'd seen that these people were good people, that I loved them and cared about them. How could I maintain my faith in the Christian God in light of what I'd seen? Uh, Dan, uh, in 2005, had been a, a little more crushed by the world. He'd had big dreams coming out of college, and he, uh, he thought that maybe he would be able to just go into the mortgage business and, and, and do a really great job or real estate or whatever it was. Um, and, and that hadn't panned out. Uh, things had just been not really going well, and he was lacking a lot of, what, hope? And he, would, he also had a lot of questions about his faith. And so if you'd asked us in 2005 why we were spending three days a week, he quit his job, and we spent three days a week surfing, reading books, hanging out, just kind of wasting time, we would have said, well, it's fun. And, you know, fun seems like a good thing right now. Because we're confused and we're lost, and we don't understand what to make of the world. And over the next uh, three years, 2005 to 2008, Dan was our guitarist. At the time, our music director had quit, and Pastor Arch had asked Kevin to take over the music. And uh, Kevin wouldn't do that on his own, so he asked me, and I have very little talent. So I went to the one person I knew who did have talent, my friend Dan. And so every, night, every Saturday night for the next three years, Dan would come down and sleep at my parents' house. We would practice here on Saturday nights. On Sunday mornings, we would come and, and play our, our, our music. And over those three years, Dan and I were working out in our lives, just, just making decisions, you know, ordinary decisions. We want to do what we enjoy, want to have fun, whatever. But as we were making those decisions, things were changing in our lives. We were moving from a place of total utter lack of responsibility 
to a place where now Dan is the, the burgeoning patriarch of his own family. Well, I guess until Russ passes, then Dan will be the patriarch of his family. But until then, he's, he's working up to it. The patriarch of, of a family. Uh, <laughs> hang in there, Russ. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a good sermon. You'll, you'll like it. <laughs> uh, where I moved from a place of, I, I wouldn't say lack of loss of faith, but, but a, a genuine confusion to a place where I had never been more sure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free grace that liberates us, and the kingdom to come. And it's not as though we had done anything where we were making decisions to come from this place to this place. We were just doing ordinary things. We were doing the things that people asked us to do. We were doing the things that we enjoyed doing. And yet somehow behind that, looking back, I would say that our ordinary was part of God's extraordinary that as we were living our lives, God was in, in the background, you know, breaking us down, changing us, moving us to a place where we could truly become instruments of his redemption, of his salvation, of his grace to the world. So Dan, you're very ordinary, but you're part of God's extraordinary. Thank you, man. Uh, I don't know. Did did we get uh, did we get note sheets? I printed them out, but I didn't have time to uh, cut them. Yeah. All right, Let's take out your pew Bibles. Take out your pew Bibles and turn to uh, Luke two forty one. Luke two forty one, and we'll we'll read that text together. If the usher, if there are any ushers here who couldn't go into the um, into the office, oh, Colleen, you're you're a saint. Thank you so much. Um, there, there are some sheets that can be cut. I was real behind today. All right, Luke 2.41. Uh, if, if, you, if you turn there, please stand up, and we're going we're gonna to read this text together. Luke 2.41 to 52. All right. His, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother didn't know it. But supposing him to have been in the company or caravan, they went a day's journey, sought him among relatives and acquaintances, and so when they didn't find him, they rushed, returned back to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple. That three days, by the way, it's one day of travel, one day travel back, and then one day looking for him. Uh, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, amazed, they were troubled, uh, shocked. And his mother said to him, son, why would you do this to us? Look, your father and I have been seeking you anxiously. You've been worrying us, son. Why would you do it? And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject or obedient to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You may be seated. Pious people, churchgoers, Mary and Joseph. 
Uh, when it says that they did this every year, they made a big trip to Jerusalem. That, that means that they're, uh, well, just like we talked about a few weeks ago with Zacharias. Uh, good, solid, Bible-believing Christians, right? I mean, they, they're in the pews, in week, out week. They, they try to do the right things. They try to make the right prayers. They're, they're try- in fact, they're trying to raise their son well, right? They, they know that one of the laws is honor your father and mother. And so when they have this terrible experience, they, they son, why are you doing this to us? And then there's nothing wrong with that. Think about it also, just before this, Mary uh, in, in chapter one has found out that her son will be the savior of the world. Imagine that God entrusts to you the savior of the world and you, you lose him on a vacation. Like, whoa, <laughs> you're on the hook there. That's not a good move. So you can imagine she's really worried. She's not just worried about her son. She's worried about the future of the world. So she, her heart's beating. She's, she's confused. Uh, she rushes back to get him. When she finds him, it says that Jesus is uh, he's listening and asking questions of the teachers. This is one of the only times that Luke uses the word uh, didaskalas for teacher. Usually when he talks about teachers, he uses pejorative terms. Uh, Pharisees, scribes, whatever. His, the indication, Jesus, by the way, is a teacher like this, a didaskalas. So the in- implication is that, that Luke is saying, you know, these guys were, these were good guys. These were good teachers. These were, you know, the kinds of people that you could trust. And, and Jesus is, is in there, and he's asking questions, and he's, and he's talking to them. Interesting, um, if you're familiar with a more Jewish tradition, when it says Jesus is asking them questions, this is not like uh, when my daughter asks me a question. Mommy, where you are? Mommy, where you are? Where's mommy? Oh, she's upstairs. This is not the kind of questions that, that rabbis and, and their Talmudin their, um, their disciples ask. In fact, uh, in rabbinic tradition, really what Jesus is more doing is he's like, well, Gamaliel, you say that in the Torah, we know that God says this and this. Does that not mean that our zeal should be curbed over here, over this and that? It's, it's, an, it's an inquiring, like it's insightful questioning. It's pushing. It's much more akin to what we would think about uh, maybe lawyers, the kinds of questions that lawyers would ask in a trial. And what Jesus is doing by asking these questions is he's demonstrating his insightful, deep, incredible grasp of the, of the scriptures. In uh, rabbinic tradition, when you're 10 years old, you are, at, that, at this time, we read this in the Mishnah, at 10, a boy is now allowed to read the law. Right? So at 10 years old, a boy has enough learning to begin to encounter the Torah, the first five books of, 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 the, of the scriptures, and begins to, to in, ingest them, imbibe them, and learn from them. At 13 is when a boy is now subject to the law. That means you have three years where you learn the scriptures. At the end of those three years, you must stand under the scriptures. You are now obligated to follow them. Jesus isn't quite there yet. So it's shocking. It's remarkable to these, these, uh, these teachers that the, this young man who's only read the scriptures for two years is able to penetrate the deepest mysteries of the Torah. And they're astonished. They're shocked. Mary, probably running into this situation, is on the one hand terrified for the, the safety of her son, and then just it's remarkable what he's doing. That's why uh, you get amazed there, because it's kind of like it's, it's somewhere between uh, really impressed and terrified. In the next uh, part of the text, and you'll see this if you get your note sheets now, um, in the New King James, we get, uh, Mom, why were you looking for me? 
You know, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? Well, the New King James, or the grammar, um, it's a little bit ambiguous, and really probably a better translation, and you can see this in uh, Esther 7.9, the Septuagint's translation of Esther 7.9. There's exactly the same phrase, and it gets translated, in my father's house. Uh, Jesus is, is uh, identifying where it is that uh, he would, would, of course, be. Because they're running around, they're all over Jerusalem, they're like, where did he go, where did he go, where did he go? And then they come to the temple, there he is, and Jesus is saying, of course I'm here. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now, if we just step back for a second, we look at this story. The story is, a, is about who's Jesus' daddy, right? Mary, Mary comes in and she's like, your father and I were so worried about you. And Jesus is like, well... Why didn't you look for me in my father's house? This is very strange to her because she's like, your father's house, that's in Nazareth. And Jesus is thinking, no, it's not. It's here, it's the temple. And Mary doesn't understand this. She doesn't get it. She's not quite there yet. She doesn't understand. And so for us reading, we see the irony. When Mary says father, she means Joseph. When Jesus says father, he means Yahweh, God of Israel. And of course, in Jewish tradition, your father is the one who sets the terms for your life. You owe your father certain obligations. You have to honor your father and mother. And that means not only respect, it means obey, it means serve, it means eventually provide for, it means a lot of things. So you have to, find, you have to know who your father is. In fact, that's why um, in a lot of ancient cultures, and especially in Judaism, when you don't know who your father is, it's a shameful thing. Because it, you, you have no determination for what your life should look like, what your life should be. In this case, Jesus knows who his father is, and he is honoring his father's command. It just doesn't happen to be the one that Mary and Joseph are familiar with. Jesus' first priority is God's business. And I think the New King James translation there is totally fine, because when Jesus says, in my father's house, well, your father's house includes your father's business. So when you, when you find me in my father's house, you're going to see me doing what my father wants me to be doing. And in this case, it's, it's teaching. And, and listening. Poor Mary and Joseph. They're part, they're, they're, they're looking around, and this just seems like the ordinary kind of thing that happens in life, right? I remember once my aunt and uncle were taking care of me, and they brought, this is one of my earliest memories, they took me to SeaWorld. And there was a part at SeaWorld at the time, Captain Kids World, you've heard of this, and there's, there's these um, big cylinders that kind of hang down, and they're kind of like punching bags, right? And I was really excited. I was very small, um, and, I, and I was running in and out of the, of the punching bags, running in and out of the punching bags, and, and I remember seeing Aunt Jeannie right there, and I ran up to her leg, and I looked up, and it wasn't Aunt Jeannie at all, and I looked around, and I didn't see anyone that I recognized, and I was like, ah! Poor Mary and Joseph, this is the kind of thing that happens in life. It's just an ordinary thing, and they respond in ordinary, good, pious ways. And yet, and yet, they're a part of something that is absolutely extraordinary. God's extraordinary work in the world to save the world. They just don't see it. But this brings up a little bit of a question for us, and I'd like to think about this. Okay, so we know that Mary and Joseph, they're good people. They're church-going, they're pious. Why is Jesus doing this to them? I think about this, really, okay. So Jesus decides, he's, he's sitting there, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'd like to spend a couple days just hanging out, talking theology. And, you know, if, that's, if that gives my mom a heart attack, that's fine. 
whatever. I mean, it's because because really, is what's more important than sitting in a classroom with you know professors and talking about the finer points of theology? Nothing, nothing could be more important than that. Certainly not my parents' you know well-being, right? Well, that just sounds crazy. So I'd like to think about this. What what is it? Why does why does Jesus think it's so important? Why is it so important for God to have him do this thing in Luke? What, why, why is he doing that? What is the point? Before we go there, um, we do have to take a small aside into the history of Christian theology. Um, we have to do this because it's a practice that Neil uh, began, really continuing from Arch, where it's like you have a sermon and it looks like it's going somewhere and then you just have to go off to the side, do something completely different for no reason whatsoever except that hopefully someone's interested, usually not. Uh, so I apologize. Uh, interestingly, I, so as I'm studying this passage, it turns out that this passage was the, the, the locus of a massive debate that almost split uh, the Christian church in the 400s AD. Because on the one time, at that time, uh, the sort of the, the center of Christianity was in Egypt and the Middle East, particularly in Alexandria, Egypt, and Antioch, which I think is in Syria. And the, the Christians who came out of these different areas had different views about Christology, that is, our theology of Christ, of Jesus, of who he was and what he did. Now, all of these, Alexandrians and Antiochians, they all agreed with the Trinity, and they all believed that Jesus was both human and divine. However, the Alexandrians really like to focus, they like to emphasize Jesus' divine nature. That's the first thing in your your note seat. Alexandrian, Alexandrian Christology emphasizes Jesus' divine nature. And so they loved this text, right? Because in the middle of this text, you have a 12-year-old boy. And he's like, he's like, really, really, Gamaliel? Really? What about this? And Gamaliel's like, oh, mind blown. I mean, how often does that happen? A 12-year-old boy just wowing everyone. I mean, I expect, of course, my children will do that. Uh, I mean, there's no question there, but, but for most of you you, you, you can't even imagine this, right? And so the Alexandrian Christians would look at this and they'd be like, ha-ha, Jesus isn't any normal guy. Jesus is God incarnate. He has the mind of God. And so he has insight, wisdom, that is beyond all reckoning. Well, Antiochian Christians, uh, their, their Christology emphasized Jesus' humanity. That's the next thing in your note sheet. So the Alexandrians, uh, divine nature, Antiochians, uh, humanity. And they love this passage. They look, because they're reading through it. And then at the very end, it says, it says, uh, what does it say? And, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature or standing and in favor with God and men. Well, think about it. Can God really increase in wisdom? I mean, he can't, right? Because he's, he's perfect, he's infinite. So if, if God cannot increase in wisdom, and Jesus is said to increase in wisdom, then surely there's something kind of funny going on there. And so the Antiochians said, well, really when we encounter Jesus, we encounter a human Christ. And when the Alexandrians talk about Jesus, they say, we encounter a divine Christ. And there was this kind of clash. So that's interesting. Just thought I'd bring that up. Uh, I, if you want to, if you want to make sense of it, I don't know. I think John Calvin had a had a pretty decent solution. He said, "Well, it's not possible for the infinite to be expressed in the finite, so it's like not impossible. It's not possible for a human brain 
to uh, process all the things that God knows. So even though Jesus has a divine nature, uh, his human brain sort of prevents him from expressing it, kind of. I don't know. I think that's interesting. You know, you've got the Alexandrians, you've got the Antiochians. What's interesting is that Luke doesn't seem to be interested in any of that. Uh, Luke seems to be interested in something completely different. And that is, he's emphasizing that Jesus, and you can see this also in uh, verse 40, which I don't have on your note sheet, but if you have your Bible open, you can, you can see it. He, they're, they're, he's more interested in the way that, that uh, Jesus is, is constantly, um, is ever increasing in the favor of the Father. Right, so in your la- uh, Luke emphasizes the ever-increasing favor of the Father for the Son. And Neil and I were talking about this. We were talking about how, how it's the case that, that God the Father looks down on Jesus, and, and it's, it's, there's never a moment when he's completely satisfied. There's, it's constant joy, a constant increase in favor. It's as though there's no end to the joy and love the Father has for the Son. It just goes and goes and goes and goes. And I suggest to you that's probably the same way God sees us. And it's the same way we will see each other when we are with God in the kingdom forever. Aside over. Finish. So back to the lecture at hand. We have this question. Why did Jesus think it's so important to scare the pants off his parents so he could talk theology. Well, I think the text gives us a little bit of a hint. You'll notice uh, number, uh, verse 51. Then he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject or obedient to them. This is the first time, actually this is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus even talks that, uh, the things that he says to his parents. And this, right after that, is the very first time in Luke's gospel where Jesus does something. Where Jesus is an actor in the drama. Up till now, Jesus has been sort of the kind of, he's just been passively like he's a baby, his parents take him to Egypt, or whatever happens. But Jesus is just kind of there. His parents bring him to Jerusalem. Da, da, da. But now, now Jesus is, is suddenly in, in, in control in command. He's, he's making a move. He's the main character of the story. Something has changed in the time that he was in the temple until now. Something has happened such that he is no longer just being carried along in life. Instead, now he is the main actor in life. Notice that, that Luke even tries to emphasize this a little bit more. He says, now Jesus was subject or obedient to them. Well, we assume that he would be subject and obedient to them before. But now, because Jesus is doing his own thing, it's Jesus' choice to obey his parents. Jesus is no longer just, yes, I'll do whatever you want, you're my parents, da da Now Jesus is, has some kind of new authority where he willingly subjects himself to his parents' uh, power. He, he willingly sub, uh, submits to them in a way that he would never have to do before. So something's changed. Something is different. In fact, you might say that these are a whole bunch of ordinary circumstances, and yet behind them, behind these ordinary circumstances, there is some kind of God's extraordinary circumstance going on. There's, there's some kind of extraordinary, exciting thing that God's doing, and it just, it's just hard to see it. What is that thing? Why did Jesus go to the temple? Why does he have to listen to these teachers and ask them questions? What's going on? Well, let's turn to 
First Samuel. First Samuel. Uh, I should have I should have gotten the pew Bibles and gotten the page number. Neil, or is there someone who has the pew Bible? Can you find First Samuel two, one to ten, and just call out the page number. One forty-seven in your pew Bibles. First Samuel two one to ten. Let me set the stage for you. Hannah, uh, the wife of Elkanah, uh, was barren, had no children. Praise and praise and praise and praise. God grants her a son, and this is what she says. That son, by the way, is Samuel, for whom the uh, the book is named. She says, "My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation." No one is holy like the Lord. There is none beside you, there, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge. Yet we think we have knowledge, but God has a different kind of knowledge. And it's expressed in a, spe- in a special way. By him, actions are weighed. This is how God's knowledge is expressed. The bows of mighty men are broken. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. The, the ones who can't walk can suddenly walk. The ones who are mighty are brought down. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. The, 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 the ones who are uh, just satisfied with food are now hungry. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren, the barren woman has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive, brings down to the grave, brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts them up. He raises poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. You can see what, what her, her, her cry out is. It's that everything you thought about the world is upside down. And she knows that because she, who was made fun of and looked down on and and ignored, now she has a child and she sees in that experience what God is like. God is the one who takes you from down here and lifts you up there. Drop down a little bit. 1 Samuel 2, 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Okay, so we got Hannah singing a song about God raising her up from nowhere. And then we find out what happens to her son. He grows up in stature in favor with both the Lord and men. Now let's turn back to Luke. Luke, uh, First we'll start in Luke 1. Luke 1, 46 to 55. Scott, when you find Luke 1, 46 to 55, will you call it out, buddy? Luke 1, 46, 55. Luke 1. Luke 1. 540 in your few Bibles. Thank you, Scott. And Mary said, My soul, Mac Mary, Jesus' mom, a nobody. She just finds out she's pregnant miraculously, a lot like Hannah. And this is what she says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Again, God is mighty, God is holy. And how is that expressed? His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm, scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Those who are uh, arrogant are shown to, be, to know nothing. He puts down the mighty from their thrones. Those who are strong in the world are cast down. 
He exalts the lowly. He fills the hungry with good things. If you're hungry, God feeds you. The rich, he sends away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his memory. The same song. The same story. Mary sees Jesus and she responds in the same way. And then, of course, as we find at the end of our text, what happens to Jesus? Well, he grows in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I suggest to you that Luke is, uh, is intentionally getting us to think about Jesus in terms of Samuel. It's a very strange thing for him to do. If, if you're going to pick someone from the Bible, somebody cool, that you want you know, your kid to be like, what, David? Maybe besides Jesus, obviously Jesus, but it, other than Jesus, what, you go with David, maybe Abraham. Why Samuel? Samuel's a nobody. If you remember, Samuel is the, he's the priest at the temple of Shiloh. He's the one who announces David's reign. David is going to become king. And he predicts the coming of the temple. Those are some interesting things that Samuel does. And, and we're deliberately being pushed to see Jesus like Samuel. Why? Like Samuel, Jesus demonstrates authority in the temple. Like Samuel, Jesus welcomes in the reign of God. Samuel says reign of David. Jesus says kingdom of God. Like Samuel, Jesus has power in the temple. Jesus is the one who can shame even the finest teachers of Israel at a very young age. And then the difference. Samuel says that the one who is coming will build the temple and give God a place to live on earth. Jesus says your temple is is going to be destroyed. Luke wants us to think about Jesus in terms of Samuel's prophetic ministry. Samuel is the one who brings in the kingdom of David, who predicts the temple, who tells Israel where they're going, and Jesus is the one who comes in and says, no, now it's the kingdom of God and the destruction of the temple. Why is this important? One last one. Just one more, and then I'll just stop flipping your Bibles. Just one more. Just bear with me. One, oh, wait. Some surprising similarities on your note sheet. Samuel heralds the good news of the Davidic reign and ultimately the construction of the temple. The Davidic reign and ultimately the construction of the temple. Jesus heralds the good news of the kingdom of God and ultimately the destruction of the temple. This is a fascinating. So, so Samuel says the temple's coming. A uh, generation later, uh, Solomon, as Neil and I were discussing earlier today, in Yiddish, Shlomo. You guys don't think that's funny? That's like my favorite. I really want to have a boy so we can name him Shlomo. Shlomo and Ayrton can hang out. First uh. Kings uh, 8, 27 to 29. You don't have to turn there, but, but Solomon is, he's just constructed the temple and he's dedicating it. And this is what he says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Can God live on earth? Of course not. Behold, heaven and the heavens can't contain you, God. How much this temple, how much less this temple I've built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. 
that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, that's where my name will be, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. God, of course, of course you can't live here in this building. You're so big that the universe can't contain you. And yet, you know, we're going to make this thing and hopefully you'll, you'll bless us by being here so we can communicate with you. That's the end of Samuel's ministry. And it's the beginning of Jesus. Jesus starts in the temple and he says, I have authority here. And for those of us with ears to hear who know that he is the son of God, we know that now Jesus has replaced the temple. That everything the temple was supposed to do, Jesus does in himself. In fact, Solomon, Shlomo, says, God, of course you can't live here. Luke says, yes, you can. In Jesus Christ, God lives with us. Something unimaginable to the greatest king of Israel. And as his his ministry moves forward, and as he predicts the destruction of the temple, he'll say, there is a place now where you shall be, and it is no longer this temple. If you want to meet with me, if you want to be with me, where are you going to go? The church. Where you are, there I will be. Not only was the temple done away with, but even Jesus' earthly body is no longer there. Instead, he dwells with us by the Spirit. God's so big he can, can't be contained by the heavens, but he willingly lives here with us. Man, that's some heavy stuff. Wow, that's, so obviously you're going to take that home and really apply that in your lives. Like, yeah, um, so, you know, you have a lot of great points that have been brought out today. You know, you can talk about Antiochian Christianity. That's going to be really helpful around the water cooler uh, when you go back to work, uh, either tomorrow, well, I guess next week. You can sort of talk about, you know, whether or not um, Jesus actually could increase in wisdom. What's, a lot of fun, a lot of fun that you can use there. So if you're, if, maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're like, What? What is all this about? Okay, fine. Yeah, Jesus is Samuel. Great. He blows up the temple. Cool. Uh, So what? Well, I I suggest to you that you're probably feeling a lot like Mary. Right? Mary comes in here and she's like, what are you doing? Like, what? It's me, your mom. Right? Remember, I've raised you. Like, why would you do this to me? And Jesus is like, ah, well, you know, come on, mom. Of course, I'm going to be in my father's house. He's kind of winking off to us on the side, like father, meaning him. And she's like, but he's right here. It's in Nazareth. She's confused. She's she's lost. She doesn't understand what this has to do with anything. And it's only when we kind of come to the text later, in the context of of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the whole council of scripture, that we can even say any of this. Of course, Mary is lost. Mary is in the middle of just ordinary life, and yet she's a part of something that is God's extraordinary life. And she has no idea, nor could she. God doesn't even expect her. When Jesus, uh, when Jesus kind of rebukes her a little bit, he's like, why are you seeking me? I mean, of course I'm in my father's house. Luke goes out of his way. The, 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 the text there is, in Greek, very soft. It's a very soft, gentle, kind of leading rebuke. It's not like, come on, mom. Sort of how I dealt with my mom in high school when she, she's like, get home by midnight. Ah, never! No, it's not like that. It's, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like um, mom, of course, I gotta be in my dad's house, right? That's kind of the, the gist of it. 
he doesn't expect her to understand everything. So here's Mary. What's, going, what's really going on is that Jesus is in the process of taking authority over the temple, replacing it, becoming the salvation of God for the world. And all she can see is her kids scaring the daylights out of her. And so let's look at the last thing that says about Mary. His mother kept all these things in her heart. Mary's confused. She's been scared. And she knows that something astonishing is going on, but she doesn't know what it is. And so she just holds it. She says, I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to hide all this here. And as he grows up and begins doing what he does, I know that he's supposed to be the savior of the world. Uh, Maybe then it'll all begin to make sense. And in Luke's gospel, at the very end, it's only after the resurrection that the Spirit of God opens up the scriptures to the people and they begin to look back into the Old Testament and see these types, these fulfillments that Jesus is doing. They begin to understand that he is the new temple, that we have been paid for in all of our sins, that we have this new life. All this stuff begins to happen, but it only happens after the resurrection. So if you're caught in the middle of God's extraordinary, like Mary is, it all looks kind of ordinary and kind of weird. And you can tell things are changing, but you don't know how they're going to end up. You don't know how it's going to get all sorted out if you're caught there. And so what do you do? You do what Mary does. You keep being pious. You keep coming back to Jerusalem every year to worship at the temple. You show up to church every Sunday. You pray. You worship. Things seem ordinary. Maybe things are changing a little bit, but you hold it all in your heart. You wait and see. Because maybe your ordinary is part of God's extraordinary. So maybe that's where you are in life. Maybe things are beginning to change in ways that you don't quite understand. Maybe you're doing all the right stuff. You're, you're pious. You're going to church. You're listening as best you can to God's word. You're, you're living a life that's, that's pure, that's holy. You're generous. You're compassionate. You're doing all the things that you're following Jesus the best you can. And yet, things around you don't seem, it seems like they might be in flux a little bit, and you don't understand it. Maybe the, the, the rock-solid, normal way that, that, that life go is, has always gone is beginning to crack up a little bit. Maybe things are shaking a little bit. Maybe it's in your church family. Maybe it's in, in your family at home. Maybe it's in your life at work. Maybe it's, I don't know where it is, but maybe things are beginning to get a little bit uncomfortable, uneven, and you don't quite understand it because you're doing the right things. Well, maybe the kingdom of God is springing in on you. Maybe this is one of the kingdom moments that we've been talking about. It's surprising and we don't understand it and that's okay. Hide these things in your heart. Wait and see. Carry on. And maybe after a while you'll see how your ordinary is a part of God's extraordinary. I just wanted to share this, this last story. Um, maybe you've heard it before. I've given it before. Um, in the Civil War, so the Civil War is happening, and we're at 1863, I think, and up to this point, uh, the, the Union has lost a lot, and, and the Confederacy is just dominating on the battlefield. And, and we get to what, is, what we look now as the turning point of the Civil War. It's the Battle of Gettysburg, right? And at Gettysburg, on the second day 
of the battle. It was a three-day battle. On the second day, uh, the Confederacy sees a weakness in the Union line. And their strategy throughout the war has been to find the weak point in the line, flank it, and then cause the, the Union to have to retreat. And so they see the weak point in the, in the Union lines on the far, like, if I remember correctly, southeastern most point, little, little round top. It's a little hill. It's called Little Round Top. Uh, my father took me there when I was in eighth grade. Russ, you were there. So were you. Man, right, right down memory lane today. Fun times. Uh, and and it's, it's a, just a gentle hill. This is Pennsylvania. And, and it's a gentle hill, but there's some rocks there and whatnot. And the, the rebels begin to, to charge at this line. And, and the line is being held. The very extreme end of the Union line is being held by a, a regiment from Maine under the command of an academic from Bowdoin College named uh, Joshua Chamberlain. And Joshua Chamberlain is, has given orders. He says, whatever you do, hold the line. Because if you don't, you know, we're going to get beat up like we always do. And so Chamberlain, uh, with a company that's less than half strength, uh, all day with no support, rep- uh, repels these repeated charges up the line. And he's losing man after man after man. Um, and more importantly at the time, he, he, he's l- losing bullets. He's requesting help, but none comes. And the, the rebels show no sign of flagging whatsoever. And he comes to a point where most of the men in his unit have no more ammo, and they can see that the rebels are going to charge again, and they're going to lose. And so Chamberlain, really at the brink of defeat, says, well... Fix bayonets. We're going to charge. And so his men, with no ammo whatsoever, put their bayonets on and they charge down the hill. And they begin taking, you know, captives. And they, they, they stop the attack, right? Now, you ask Chamberlain later, well, you know, just doing what you have to do, right? I mean, if you don't have ammo and you've got to hold the line, well, you put on bayonets and charge. And yet we can look back now, and we can say that was the turning point of the war. That was the moment when things changed and slavery had a real chance of ending in this country. Because one guy just held fast, did the ordinary thing. And then in the eyes of history, we look back and say he was part of God's extraordinary. My friends, keep doing what you do. Keep being pious. Keep being church-going, virtuous, God-fearing people. Keep praying. Keep living for God. Keep giving. And, and when things start to get change and, and, and scuttle up, maybe, maybe you're about to be a part of God's extraordinary life, this kingdom, upside-down life that you won't understand until it's over. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're a God who shakes things up. You're a God who changes things, who who makes things uh, exciting and uncomfortable. That you're a God, nevertheless, who looks out for the people who love you. God, we pray we will be people who are expectant that when change and uncertainty enters our lives, that we'll be people who know that we're a part of something extraordinary that you're doing. We thank you, God, for your son, the son who replaces the temple, who ends sacrifice, 
the Son who is our sacrifice, who gives us access to your kingdom by his blood and through our faith. God, we pray we will be people who know that our ordinary is part of your extraordinary. In your son's name we pray, amen.